Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Michelle Power. She's an associate professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at uh, McCary University. I hope I pronounced it right. And uh, she works on host-parasite interactions in wildlife uh, with special interest in protozoan parasites. And, you know, she's in Australia. I asked her about koalas, but... uh, I don't think that's the uh, wildlife she's talking about, unfortunately, because I love them, but uh, we'll talk about her work. So, Michelle, thanks for coming. Great. Thanks, Richard. Um, Yeah, no, not doing much on koalas, but lots of other wildlife that we might talk about. So maybe we can captivate you with some other species. Very good. Well, yeah, what what wildlife do you focus on and why? Why do you like the ones that you, you work on? Yeah, so so we work on a number of different species and uh, from basically from land to the sea, so Tasmanian devils, which I guess are closely related to koalas. We've done some kangaroo work, uh, seals, penguins, and, of course, the ever-famous bats. So um, I've picked about four or five species and they've been selected for their connectivity to humans and the potential impacts that humans can have on those species relative to the transfer of parasites and and other microorganisms okay and what um so in wildlife where are they picking up these parasites is it when they're in the wild or in captivity are they particularly amenable or do they become changed so that they're they're you know they have more problems with parasites yeah, so it, it it varies again with each of these hosts. So each of the the groups that we're looking at, we I might take a step back. We 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 look work on a suite of different target organisms, usually that are associated with the gut. So a couple of examples, and you know some of the listeners may have heard of these. Uh, so Cryptosporidium and Giardia, they're transmissible via water, and so they travel through the environment. And so when animals are, or when our wildlife species, they can pick them up in their natural surroundings, like if they're in urban environments, say, and drinking water, or potentially when they're undergoing rehabilitation, when they've come into care after injury and then hopefully planned for release, or also when they're, they're in captive environments for long term. But we're a little bit more interested in those animals that are coming in and encountering humans and our organisms for a short period of time and then going back into the wild, all those that are in urban environments where they're potentially exposed to the organisms we're working on or that may present a risk. So what are the circumstances in which the, uh, the again, what, what specific animals, like of, of them, what is the number one animal that is of concern to you and why? And then I want to ask you what they get affected with and how and all that. Yeah, okay, all righty. So, yeah, the number one animal, uh, <laughs> it's... That's a good question. <laughs> it comes down to my favourite. Look, I, I I have to say the number one interest for me is the bats, so the big fruit bats or the flying foxes. I'm particularly interested in them. So we know we're here and we're living this at the moment, but we hear that a lot of viruses have come from flying foxes, so done a host switch and uh, emerging in human populations or other animal species. Um, but... I'm interested in what we might term reverse zoonoses, so also organisms from us going into 
bats and some of these other species and then how that may impact them but also how they may change and then come back into the environment and come back to humans so so organisms don't just come from wildlife into us they also go from us into wildlife and that's kind of the crux and so all these any wildlife species that have this close connection to humans are potentially at risk from that from one of those events so okay uh, yeah i thought with bats it was uh, horseshoe bats i don't know if it was flying foxes but uh I mean, who knows? You know, it just seems to be generic bats, supposedly, yeah. that uh, harbor these viruses. Well, yeah, so just generally, bats have a, a, a huge diversity of viruses, and um, there's a, a number of them that have, you know, when, when I think it's important to note that when we say that they, they come from bats, while there are some that are transmissible now, like rabies, and in Australia, we have a, a an Australian bat um, lysovirus that, that, people can get if they handle a bat or if they get a bite or a scratch. Some of these other viruses, you know, may have actually done the host switch 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100, you know, how back in time. It's not something that's necessarily happening right now. So, and I think that's important to note. But I think also what's, what's interesting with bats is that we don't really know why they have these highly diverse viruses and also why the viruses that they do carry don't impact their health to the degree that we see in people and the other animals that those viruses impact. Um, but they also do have, so I've mentioned parasites and, and some of even bacteria, that they actually seem to be carrying some quite diverse and really interesting parasites and bacteria. So there might be something more going on in, the, in bats relative to a multitude of, of different types of disease-causing organisms as opposed to just viruses. Well, what ecological role do uh, the flying foxes serve? You said they're fruit bats, which makes yeah. you think they just eat fruit, but do they pollinate as well? Yeah, yep. So they're pollinators and dispersers. So they, they're, that moment, they're a huge, important species in Australia at the moment um, relative to bushfire recovery and um, regenerating all our um, lost plants and ecosystems. Uh, but they're also extremely urbanised. So I can go into the middle of the city here, and there'll be five, 6,000 fruit bats just hanging in trees in our parklands. So there's this really? nice interesting, yeah, 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 they're fantastic. There's this nice interesting kind of um, adaptation that they've been able to do in urban environments and obviously that leads to conflict with people as well relative to smell and noise and, yeah. Yeah, so there's... there's do, any, do anyone, any people have them as pets? Are you allowed to or no? No, you, you're not allowed to have them as pets, but they are one of the leading animals going into wildlife care at the moment in Australia um, as secondary fire-affected species, but also so from lost habitat, um, but also from heat stress. So they're, they're very susceptible to high temperatures. And at the, I mean, you probably see maybe some of the reports of the temperatures that we're experiencing in Australia and, you know, I'm sure, you know, around the world, it's getting warmer everywhere. But when it hits 42 degrees, and I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit. Whoa, that's way <laughs> over 100. <laughs> that spells it, yeah. So um, they literally um, can't cope and they drop out of the trees and die. So we have thousands of bats going into care from heat stress and dehydration. So are you focused on the parasites of the bats or what was your focus within? Usually people focus on, you know, maybe a single host and one parasite or one disease-causing agent, but there's been a shift now in thinking and knowledge and understanding that we need to be thinking about interactions within organisms relative to disease. So 
um, basically co-infection. So, and also, you know, we've got a suite of organisms living inside us, our um, bacteria or our microbiome. They too can control the outcomes of a parasitic infection. Or uh, And so my work now is looking at thinking about the context of co-infection and how that might, and in the bats, the questions that we're asking is how that may actually drive um, shedding of viruses and risks of emerging infectious disease. So we're looking at parasites. So I mentioned the two, Cryptosporidium and Giardia, but we're also looking at malarial parasites. So they carry uh, um, parasites that are related to plasmodium that causes malaria uh, in people. And they also carry some really interesting bacteria uh, that are related to bacterial diseases or bacterials, bacterial agents that cause disease in people as well. So, uh, yeah, where, where do the, uh, the flying foxes pick up these parasites and how do they affect them? You know, what's the yeah. consequence for them? Does it kill them? Yeah, so, so it's early days with understanding if there is any kind of health impacts to them and some are just circulating, but when it comes to, like, amongst their, you know, thousands of bats, you know, the hit... Unlike the microbats that live in caves, here the flying foxes and in other places they live basically in the treetops. Um, so they're, they're still in huge numbers in those colonies and so organisms would likely be easily passing and just generally occurring within a, within a bat colony itself. But when it comes to the organisms that are related or that are likely coming from humans and this is more bacteria than the parasites it's likely that they're picking those up from the environment probably from um, drinking water they, they will actually fly down and skim urban waterways and acquire water that way yeah yeah so one of the things I, I, I keep mentioning bacteria we're actually specifically looking for antibiotic resistant bacteria and so, you know, there's a global issue where we've basically lost the ability of the arsenal of uh, treatments that we have for bacterial diseases in people. Uh, use of antibiotics has selected for resistant bacteria and now these are quite prolific in the environment. And that's the other arm of my research is looking at, you know, have these resistant bacteria made it into different wildlife species and um, bats uh, is one of the places where they actually have acquired quite substantial and interesting resistant bacterial lines. What do you mean resistant to so, I mean, these bacteria that particular to the bat? Or do you think that no, but, how bacteria that affect us have been passaged through bats? And yeah, exactly. Were, yeah, so, so they had what we would term human-associated um, bacterial species. So for an example, E. coli, and we know that human use of antibiotics has placed that evolutionary selection pressure on bacteria to acquire genetic traits to enable them to resist antibiotics. So they will carry those genetic traits with them, even though they're not necessarily being exposed to antibiotics. And so now there's a number of uh, bacterial strains out there that are just, you know, happily carrying the mechanisms that they need to resist antibiotics if they're exposed to them. And that's the problem we have in human health and hospitals as well. So, and how, do now, the bats, how do the bats play in? Do you think that they're helping to spread these bacteria somehow? Or what's their yeah, role? So, yeah, so that's what we're trying to understand. So, so it's, it's early days. So we've only been looking at the kind of dissemination of these resistant bacteria into wildlife for, well, in any great depth at least for the last, you know, four, four or five years. So we're actually trying to understand um, is it 
you know, are these... The, the interesting thing about these genetic traits is, is they can be shared between different species of bacteria. So we're trying to understand if a, if a bat or another wildlife species acquire a resistant bacteria from the environment, can they share those genetic traits with the bacteria that are actually residents inside them or their, natural, their naturally occurring microbiota or microbiome? And also whether they're changing and coming back into the environment. But it's it's too early to be able to answer those questions. I'd love to, and we're working towards it, but um, yeah, just a bit early at the moment. And we haven't, uh, you know, we haven't even gotten to the environmental sampling yet. We're still just trying to understand what's out there, what's happening within the bat populations and those other species I mentioned, and then um, the next steps are to start looking at the environment and what's coming back and potentially um, at risk of coming back into human populations. Hmm. So uh, if you take a, pic a particular bacteria that causes problems in people, um, you know, a resistant one, if a mm -hmm. bat picks up that, that bacteria, uh, does it appear to have any effect on the bat, any adverse effect? Or, you know, does yeah. the bat alter it by the bacteria being inside them? Yep, yep. Okay. So so the first thing maybe we just might go back, does, do, do those have any effect on the bat? Um, so that's at the moment... Um, Again, I would say it's still early days, but but it, there doesn't appear to be any, and at least when they're in bats that are in, um, that we're kind of trapping in their free-range populations. When an animal comes into captivity um, because it's injured and if it acquires one of those infections, that, you know, that's at the individual level and could have a very different outcome. So I'm kind of generally more talking about now at the, um, you know, the population level in free-range bats. Um a lot of the resistant bacteria, well, I guess resistant bacteria fall into two classes. So really those that, you know, that we know about and that cause to severe disease such as tuberculosis or the mycobacterium that causes tuberculosis or, um, you know, Vibrio that causes cholera um, or the, the friendly bacteria that we've carried for a long time like our E. coli and Klebsiella that were what we would call opportunist, opportunistic pathogens. So um, they all would these bacteria typically kind of get a, cause disease or in the past cause disease in people who are compromised in some way or in hospitals and have you know like wounds or surgery. But now those um, what I the way I pictured is these kind of resistant friendly bacteria. They're the ones that are now emerging and and causing disease in healthy patients who might pick something up or healthy people who might pick something up just from the environment from a cut and pick up one of these resistant bacteria. So that's kind of, they're the ones we're looking at in the bats. So, well, this is just, um, you know, obviously complete speculation, but if bats have, um, you know, a lot of viruses associated with them, and in some cases viruses can, you know, help bacteria transit different parts of their uh, you know, they, they, they can help bacteria acquire certain genes and help them transfer genes between bacteria. I wonder what would happen if you had a, you know, a given bacteria that affects people. It goes into a bat. Now uh, it's in a different environment with all these, you know, maybe novel viruses. And maybe some of them, you know, can somehow prey upon that bacteria and transfer genes to it and interact with it and make it more virulent or different or, you know, help it acquire different traits of genes. Yeah, that's pretty speculative. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but I just, I guess I, I imagine bats as like a witch's brew of, 
of viruses and all kinds of other stuff inside them. I don't know. I know they're just living creatures anywhere else, but you know, I'm being too hard on them. No, no. This is this is the problem we you know that we we face both in our research, but also with wanting to you know make sure that they're they're not seen like that because you know just you know, as they come them. from rodents as well. But bats just seem to get this kind of bad rap. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, look, there there are some interesting things happening in them relative to lots of different organisms, not just viruses. Um, you, you know, we, we need to remember that the reason these viruses are uh, coming from bats and getting into us is because we're encroaching on their environments and interacting with them. It's not like they're coming out to drop them on us. So. Right, yes. So, yeah. I should demonize, demonize the bats, but shame. No, let's let's try and not do that. And it's hard because, you know, you know, we want to think about human health, but we also, you know, we share the planet with lots of different organisms and, and yeah, we're pushing that to the well, point. What's, um, <laughs> what's useful then to, you know, what's useful to understand about them in your opinion? What, what is going to be some of the, you know, there's a lot. I can hear you're at the beginning of the journey, but what do you feel is going to be the most useful questions that you can help answer about? Ads and about parasites. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I think that one of the, you know, the the risk of diseases spilling over and coming from bats is not going to go away, okay? Not unless humans do something to minimise invading their habitats, you know, connecting the connections with them. Unless unless that changes, we're continually going to be exposed as our... um, other organisms that we have around us, like our pets and um, domestic animals, they're also going to be exposed to the various organisms that bats carry. Um, so I think the, the biggest thing is that is if we're going to have more that high risk of more organisms spilling over and coming and causing issues, then we need to understand what the drivers are of that and and how we can maybe put actions in place to stop that from happening. So, for example, um, like I've said, if we um, have animals coming into care and uh, some of the management practices that are there might be driving or increasing risks of organisms, um, of bats acquiring organisms that may evolve and change or spill over, then we need to act at those points. So, so working out, I think, where the, you know, where the hotspots are for, for those risks of emergence and trying to manage at those sites, but then also working out what's happening within the bat that causes that spillover. So they don't shed these viruses all the time. There's something going on that, that flicks on, that you know, at a certain time the viruses will be more prevalent in the environment. And so, so I think understanding those uh, and that, so basically the disease processes. But I think the second uh, component to managing and understanding uh, risks from bats is actually understanding how they um, cope with the multitude of different organisms that they have um, inside them that don't cause them any so then would you expect um would you expect that the bats become more likely to um you know when they're stressed i would expect i guess the bats to first of all i guess eat things they wouldn't normally eat go places they wouldn't normally go and because their physiology is stressed you know, maybe the viruses that were once commensal with them now will, you know, try to jump out of them and leave them or cause them sickness. And same thing with the bacteria. 
Yeah. So yeah. So I guess it's it's whatever shifts that balance. So so if we think about you know we we've got a lot of different organisms inside us and they have to go through a biological process to replicate and to produce and then they have to be excreted in some way. Okay. So our immune systems and the bat immune systems, you know, they're turned on. They're keeping that um, interaction or that activity of those organisms at a lower level. But then you're right, stress or something, um, change in food source, it could be some sort of life history, it could be something happening within the colony, like behaviour dynamics, something there flicks that switch and then those organisms get a hold, they can reproduce and then they start to be shed in the environment, which then increases exposure if, if people or other animals are in that, that kind of um, zone where those organisms are. So... So yeah, so but but understanding, you know, there's there's a lot of people who have looked at various sorts of stresses to try and understand this with um, certain diseases, but there's still no clear cut answer as to when and why this happens. So. Well, since the bats live, you know, close to a lot of people, I guess in your area, like you said, if there's heat shock, a lot of them die. So imagine mm-hmm. them like dying and laying on the ground, and other animals eating them, and then maybe uh, you know diseases get transferred to the animals, et cetera. But I guess it, it is very important to understand where they go, what they do, what they interact with, what happens when they're subject to, uh, you know, these fires or this heat damage. And if they die, what happens? Do they spread disease, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. And, th- and that's what I mean by understanding what those risk points are and how we can manage those things to prevent spillover because, you know, Cities aren't going away, bats aren't, well, unless people, unless we actually get rid of them, bats aren't going away, so nor is that risk of, of spillover. Well, they better not go away because they pollinate a lot of uh, well, exactly. essential crops, right? <laughs> they do indeed. They, they do, do people, indeed. Do people even know that they pollinate anything and what they pollinate? Yeah, that, well, there's a lot of messages and communications out there to try and get people to understand the important role they play um, as an ecosystem um, service provider, but you know, you know, people. If you've got a thousand bats sitting in trees over your backyard and pooping all over your balcony, <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You think hmm. yeah, it's yeah. Look, it's yeah. I mean, that's the message that that just generally the the bat community in Australia um, tries to push. And you know, there's spikes that you know sometimes you know. The conflict will settle, and but then something will happen. Something will get bit, or there will be a little bit of a outbreak of one of the viruses that we have here, or we have something like coronavirus, and then that puts them back in the spotlight. Look, and researchers hmm. we put them in the spotlight too. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. With well, uh, yeah, it's a question with the uh, you know the shutdowns and everything. I don't know if you did them in your area, but was there a um, a change in the bat populations? Did they? Uh, you know, come out more, like what, what happened to them? Yeah, so I probably can't comment on the bat populations because, you know, in the, basically they sit in the trees in the day and then at sunset they fly out to forage and so you'll see streams of them going everywhere and, you know, ev- nightly at certain times of the year when the flowers around my place are, um, well, when the, the trees are in flower around my place, there's, you know, 30 to 40 bats just feeding off my balcony in trees basically. But what oh. I see, so yes, we did go, we have been in lockdown, um, but what I, and we were allowed to go out and exercise. So what I had noticed on my walks 
was that um, there is a lot of, so we have another urban species. Uh, it's not like the opossums, but it's a possum. And so I, I think the possums were coming out a bit more and, you know, things were reclaiming some of the space or the urban wildlife were reclaiming some of the quiet spaces. Yeah, I've got some possums where I live and I saw a bunch of them at people's houses at night. Um, I saw a lot more animals out, which was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's definitely happening. You're know, all around the world, which is you know interesting. So, yeah, there's um, raccoons eating garbage and possums and all kinds of stuff. You know? Yeah, yeah. And they, they, you know, they they probably do that all the time. But you know, maybe between you know two a.m. and four a.m. But all of a sudden, they've got this greater window when there's no one around that they can they can forage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There might be a lot of fat raccoons and possums and things out there at the moment. <laughs> well, very cool. So, what um, what questions are you uh, are you trying to answer right now? Like, what 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 are you honing in on with your research? Yeah. Um. So specifically, what are we? So we're um, we're just getting back into the lab actually, just this week. Mm. Um. I might talk about oh. some. Yeah. Just just this week, we're starting to kick off the lab since March. So. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so I might talk about something a little bit different, kind of, or just slightly different. But um, one of the, the things I try to achieve in my research is to, you know, like I, I can think up really interesting questions and do fun things, but it's, you know, it, it needs to be translatable and it needs to be helping society or ecosystem or something in some way. And so I have this citizen science project do, have you heard of citizen science? Yeah. 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 yeah where someone that's not necessarily a formal scientist in a lab is, you know, is doing some research of their own. Yeah, helping out in some way. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I've got this citizen science scientist project called Scoop Poop Citizens Tackle Antimicrobial Resistance in the Wild. And so what we do, we've got a little kit and we have, uh, we go out into schools and do outreach and talk about this issue of antimicrobial resistance and use wildlife as the, example of the extent of you know human impacts and uh to wildlife and then we have kids run around and take well they you know go take the kit home and they collect our possum poop from their backyard send it back into us and then we test it in the lab and it's it's a way of um educating or you know non-scientists about the issue of antimicrobial resistance and what you can do to minimize uh spread of resistant bacteria and but also um getting them involved in science and collecting a sample and then helping us out by doing surveillance and understanding what's happening in urban environments relative to movement of these organisms. And, you know, we can't be in the field, so we've got this army of school children out there collecting, doing field work for us and collecting samples. So that's a pretty cool thing. So we're just starting that back up again and doing all that via Zoom. <laughs> so that's a challenge. Um, yeah, so what do, you, what do you hope to see from the... Uh... Yeah, the collection of the possum poop. Yeah, so similarly what I was talking about in the bats, um, but basically we're looking to see what the prevalence of or occurrence of these resistant bacteria and genetic traits are in the possums, what types of traits they're carrying in the bacteria in the possums, not the possums themselves. Um, and then um, also doing a little bit more, the, the research extends a little bit more again to understand the role of possums in cities and spread of parasites. And so we've got a project going with a collaborator at the University of Sydney 
and she does possum personality and behaviour. And so she's showing that, so this is Claire MacArthur, she's showing that um, possums have bold personalities and will forage further and, and eat a different array of plant types. And so we're actually testing to see if their personality impacts the types of parasites that they carry and if they're more likely to acquire parasites that might be spread on to humans. So that's the other kind of thing we're working on at the moment. All right. Very diverse research. Yeah, is it hard to identify the possum poop? Oh, no. <laughs> no, it's really easy. It's, um, yeah, no, very easy. It's, it's an elongate, it's about two centimetres long, cylindrical, it's, it's one of the most common things you see around. And in, when we go to the schools, that's part of the training before we get the kids to go collect the sample for us. And we actually create Play-Doh poo so they can kind of key out different types of wildlife scat samples. So, so yeah. And, they do, you know, you, I'll walk outside here now and be under a tree and there'll be, you know, 50 to 60 possum pellets. So it's pretty easy to identify and pretty easy to collect. Yeah, I have dogs, so I think they either eat the possums or scare them away, but other people that don't, I'm sure that they uh, they get in there and do stuff, you know. Yeah, yes. Hmm. Yeah. So, But they are a bit different. They're both marsupials, but they're different lineages. So the opossums are a little bit more closely related to kind of the, the carnivorous marsupials, like the Tasmanian devil, whereas the possums we have here um, are probably more closely related to, say, koalas and... Yeah, they look very different. Oh, really? Okay. Huh. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah, yeah. Okay, very interesting. Well, very good. Um, I know that you just got back in the lab. I'm glad you're back there and you're doing this uh, this really cool research. So what's the best way for people to keep tabs on your work? And um, if they're local to you, you know, how do they uh, find out more about participating? Yeah. Yep. So we've got, so if anyone's interested in citizen science, we've got a scooper poop website. So scooperpoop.net. Um, or, you know, if you jump on the Macquarie University website and search Michelle Power, you'll find me. But uh, we also have Twitter as well, um, which I think is my name again. So, yeah. And hopefully we'll be appearing in newspapers. And obviously, if there's some researchers listening to this, they can look for my papers. <laughs> okay. Well, very good. Well, Michelle, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Cool. Oh, and I probably, Richard, I should have probably also mentioned the Australian Society for Parasitology. So, um, okay. yeah, that's another way to find out about not just my work, but also all the interesting work we do on parasites here in Australia. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.